Hello and welcome to Tour Guide Tell All, your friendly neighborhood tour guides here to share with you our podcast episodes all about the more scandalous and intriguing sides of history. We are kicking off Black History Month here at Tour Guide Tell All. I can't believe it's February, um, but it's such a wonderful opportunity to sort of dig deep into Black history here in D.C. Um, uh, let's introduce ourselves and we'll talk a little bit more about what we have going on. I am Becca. I'm Rebecca. And together we're... So, Rebecca's. Rebecca's. Um, yay. Um, so, yes, it's Black History Month. Um, I would like to point out that we think Black history is an important element of American history. It is American history. So, by no means is this the only month that you should talk about um, Black history. And if that is the only month you're doing it in, you're not doing history right. Correct. <laughs> it should be all the time yes. and it should be uh, integrated in. Um, but it does give us an opportunity to shine a spotlight on some really interesting and important people. We've had some pretty um, cool topics in past Februaries. We have. We've done some pretty cool things. Um, but you can definitely pull through. Um, if you're newer to the podcast, definitely take a look back. Uh, we really try very hard here to have a really wide ranging uh, kind of perspective on the, the stories that we're sharing and the, the, the episodes that we're doing. Um, February for us is also the slow start, the kind of ramp into our spring season. Now, from a weather perspective, spring is still a ways away. In fact, when we were while we're recording this, we're in the depths of one of the coldest Januaries DC has had in a hot minute. So um, every day we get like a new record for coldest uh, stretch of January days in like 10 years. So it's quite cold right now. But starting in February, we start to get a little bit of visitation. We start to have more tours on our schedule, start to have more visitors. So if you're planning to come to D.C. President's Day weekend, you're planning to come maybe in March, maybe you have your spring break, we are up and running for tours with D.C. by Foot. You can check out our website, dcbyfoot.com. Pretty much anything we talk about on the podcast, we can do on a tour. So you can always email us to info at dcbyfoot.com if you want to know more about taking the podcast uh, live and coming and taking a tour with us yes. instead. Yes. And please come and we'd love to meet our people. We love it. We love it when podcast listeners come on tours. It's super fun for us. Yeah. So um, for our episode today, we have um, a topic uh, that we've definitely touched on, a woman that has come up in previous episodes. She has connected to quite a few figures that we've talked about on the podcast previously, uh, and that's Mary Church Terrell, um, who we definitely talked about quite a bit, um, touched on uh, when we did the 100th uh, anniversary of the 19th Amendment. We talked about women and suffrage. Uh, Terrell came up there. She's come up uh, in some of the civil rights uh, related episodes we've done. We've never really done a deep dive on her life, which is fascinating. Yes. And I'm super excited for this. Me too. Um, so yeah, so quickly, a word about pronunciation. I didn't know this either, actually. I have always pronounced it Mary Church Terrell, Terrell but it is Terrell. Her and her husband, it's, there's, it's not an uncommon name. People, different people pronounce it different ways, but her and her husband pronounced it Terrell. And I am going to slip up and that's okay. So I always heard it Mary Church Terrell. So we'll just leave it there. Uh, she was born Mary Church. The Terrell comes a little later on. Uh, she was born September 23rd, 1863 in Memphis. So that's a couple of things that are worth mentioning right there. 1863, we're in the midst of the Civil War. Uh, she's born in Memphis, Tennessee, which Tennessee has divided loyalties uh, during the Civil War. So it is, um, parts of it remain under Union control, parts of it are under 
uh, Confederate control, and it's kind of a mixed bag there. Uh, she comes from relatively good, wealthy stock. Her parents both were uh, had been enslaved, and by the time of her birth had been freed. Her father was the son of the master, so he had been, sort of had an elevated status and had been educated. And her parents are going to be very successful. Uh, her mother owns the first like hair salon uh, by, owned by an African-American woman in Memphis uh, after the Civil War. Her father is an African-American millionaire. In fact, the first African-American millionaire. He does a number of things, including uh, real estate and uh, a few other things. Uh, he gets married a few times, has a bunch of children, uh, and she's going to grow up in, not luxury, but comfort in Memphis, sort of part of the uh, first generation of freed people, the sort of African-American elite in Memphis. And she, from the get-go, reads everything she can get her hands on, uh, which is like me. <laughs> and she's going to be, want to be, she wants to be educated. Her parents want her to be educated. And they are going to decide that there is nowhere in Memphis for her to get educated, uh, that she should go away to school. So she goes away first to like high school and she lives with a family and then she's going to go to a different one. And she eventually ends up at Oberlin. Uh, college, which is still with us. Uh, Oberlin is still there. It was then and remains to this day very progressive. Uh, and so she is going to have this really, um, really fantastic college experience at Oberlin. And she is, she's class poet. She's in the literary society. She's one of two African-American women in her class, but she does, she writes later a lot about her experiences with racism. And she says she did not experience a lot of prejudice at Oberlin. It was a very open and welcoming place. Uh, she takes Greek and some of her uh, family members will push back because, you know, how are you going to catch yourself a husband? You know, what, what man knows Greek? which insert your eye roll here, friends. Um, <laughs> I'd love to mention one of her schoolmates at Oberlin is a woman that I hope that we'll do a full episode on. And I don't know um, if she got mentioned or if she's been mentioned before, but that's Anna uh, Julia Cooper. Uh, Anna Cooper uh, is the only woman quoted in a U.S. passport. Um, so if you ever looked at your passport book, she's the only one to have a quote there. But she and Mary Church Terrell are, are sort of these two, you know, the, the only two black women in this particular class in Oberlin, they're going to sort of graduate at the same time. They'll, pur they'll pursue the same sort of master's program as well. So Oberlin is really birthing uh, right at this like peak of this progressive movement Two women who are going to become two of the most important uh, members of sort of the black intellectual class, two of the most important members of kind of this educator activist um, group that's emerging in the 1880s. And she really, and she is, her path is similar to another woman we've talked about who she will intersect with later on in life, Ida B. Wells. They kind of come of age right as the Civil War is 
finishing and they're sort of part of this first few years of post-war activity and there's this sort of brief window that we've kind of talked about where African Americans have a place in society where they can be educated where it's acceptable to integrate them and there's this dream of like acceptance and they are sort of in this they're perfectly positioned to take advantage of that as best they can Uh, and so they both get an education they're both prominent Uh, and then as they are are finishing their education, the door sort of slams shut and the Jim Crow era kind of rises in the South. But they have this, Mary Church uh, Terrell and Ida B. Wells are going to sort of have this sort of brief moment of opportunity and take advantage of it in terms of their education. She's going to get a master's degree at Oberlin. Like she just has herself a really good time in college and uh, enjoys it very, very much. Um, She then, she graduates and is going to become a teacher because that's really the only path open to a woman. Bummer. Uh, She knows several languages. She's pretty fluent in German. She speaks Latin. So she's going to get a job teaching Latin at Wilberforce University, which is a historically black college in Ohio. Uh, And guys, not to spoil our next episode for February, but Wilberforce is going to come up again. Uh, this is a very important college, uh, and you will hear Wilberforce a lot as you start to read, I think, about those out of this progressive movement and then again out of the civil rights movement, many, many Wilberforce graduates. Um, her dad, by the way, I should mention, is not thrilled with her choosing a path of a career woman. He thinks she should get married. He thinks that is the path to security uh, for her, um, which, you know, she kind of bucks the trend on that one and really is going to... to um, decide that what she really wants to do is teach. And she does. She's going to eventually move to Washington and she becomes friendly with a woman right as she's about to, what she, as she's teaching in Ohio, she becomes friendly with a woman and the woman wants to hire her to be her companion on a trip to Europe for six months. She's going to pay for everything. Mary Church will basically be her like pal as they kind of go around Europe and Mary Church is like let's do that that sounds great but at the same time she gets this um opportunity to teach in Washington and she wants to do that too and she's worried that she won't have this job opportunity when she gets back and so her father who's kind of come around on this says all right well if you go to DC to pursue this I will make sure you get to Europe and so both of those things happen, actually. She goes to, uh, teaches at the in the Latin department at the M Street School in Washington, D.C. And when she's there, she meets a fellow teacher named uh, Robert Ter- uh, Terrell. That name seems important. It seems like it's going to come around. He's apparently smitten like a kitten with her from day one. And she's like, eh. She's kind of indifferent. She thinks he's cool, but not that cool. Uh, and she, he's really impressed at how smart she is, which I love. He, like his students, when they ask a question, if he doesn't know the answer, his response will always be, oh, let's go ask Miss Church. And so he gets this reputation of like going to church if you don't know the right answer to something. And it becomes this like joke with his students. And it's just so adorable. And eventually, after a couple of years, her father's like, okay, let's make good on this you know, trip to Europe. And she's like, yeah. And so she goes and it's supposed to be for a few months. And eventually like it ends up being almost three years. She travels around Europe, sees all the sites, does all the things. And 
then comes home and apparently Robert Terrell, uh, Terrell has been pining away for her this whole time. I love that. I know. And, and so I think they- it's worth... I think it's worth mentioning too. He's no slouch. No, he's true. exceptionally well educated. Uh, he is well connected politically. Um, he's sort of in, in, involved as she will be to many civic societies and organizations. So I don't think it's a matter of like he couldn't have found another mm-hmm. worthy match or there probably were plenty of mothers pushing their daughters towards him. So the fact that for three years, he kind of just waits and pines, I love because he's not bad marriage material for sure. No, and the only pictures I've seen of him are sort of as he's getting on in years, but he's not unfortunate looking in any respect. Like he's a he's a good-looking Dapper. guy, but he was like you know, she was it for him. It's very sweet. And um so she comes back from this European sojourn and he must have been worried that she wouldn't come back at all and I don't know, it just makes me so happy. Um and they they're going to get married. And um, she, once they get married, she can no longer teach at the same school that he does for reasons. Um, And she is going to be appointed the superintendent eventually of that same high school. So she's the first woman to hold this position. And she's going to shift her attention at this point from (coughs) her teaching to social activism, particularly focusing on the um, empowerment of black women. And I should mention they try they have they want to have a bunch of children, but she has some trouble. She has um, a few miscarriages and a stillbirth and only one living child. Uh, she names her daughter Phyllis after Phyllis Wheatley, the poet. Which I love too. It's so great. Um, and so she is going to uh, focus on her the empowerment of black women. She is going to be spurred, Becca, by an event that makes national headlines that we've actually already alluded to in this podcast. Yes. Um, and if you listen to our episode on Ida B. Wells, this is going to be the same incident that will also really uh, elevate sort of Ida B. Wells's career in journalism and her role as an activist. Uh, Mary Church Terrell has obviously been sort of raised among this first generation to really come of age at free in a free nation. Uh, and she, you know, sees herself, uh, I think, as an educator and as sort of uh, representing, right, this new sort of way. I don't really get the sense from what we have of Terrell's writings and stuff that she feels that she's an activist at this point in her life. In 1892, though, there is an event that really spurs her to embrace activism. And that is the lynching of a man named Thomas Moss. Um, Thomas Moss uh, was part of a a business called the People's Grocery. Uh, This is in Tennessee. Um, This is a Black-run grocery that is ultimately seen as sort of trying to hone in on the white grocery business. There are going to be increasing tension over this in Memphis, and it's going to sort of um, bloom into what becomes a fight, uh, an altercation, police will get involved. Moss and two other workers are going to be lynched by a white mob even while they're in police custody. This is an absolutely um, just tragic and violent event that takes place uh, that's carried out over several days. Um, The uh, detritus of this is just absolutely gruesome. Um, We'll put some links in the show notes, but I, I just think for everybody, we'll keep it at that. Um, and of course, this is going to make national news. Ida B. Wells, in particular, is going to write about this. Mary Church had known Thomas Moss. He was a friend of hers. Uh, she knew him. She knew 
of the people's grocery. And she's just absolutely devastated by this. This is really the first real lynching to have taken place in Tennessee since the Civil War. And so it really is going to spark a national conversation uh, and going to spark sort of the drive of many activists to start pushing for kind of anti-lynching legislation. And so we do see a bit of a pivot here for Mary in terms of seeing herself not just as an educator and as sort of an individual working to sort of elevate the status of Black Americans, but as someone who wants to take a more active role in movements. Uh, and again, at this times with what we've sort of talked about previously too, where things are starting to shift in American society as we get closer to 1900. Yes. And she's going to form, along with Ida B. Wells and uh, Anna Cooper and uh, Charlotte Grimke and a bunch of other colored uh, African-American women, they formed the Colored Women's League uh, in Washington, D.C. It's a service-oriented club. They're promoting unity and progress. And uh, they are going to eventually merge with the uh, Federation of African-American Women to form the National Association of Colored Women. Uh, so she is one of the sort of founding members of that. And the, the motto, which comes directly from Mary Church uh, Terrell, is lifting as we climb. Uh, and so that's going to be the uh, aim is to create solidarity uh, among black women who are fighting not only racial discrimination, but also gender discrimination. And so have sort of this dual burden of trying to figure out um, where, which direction to fight in first and how to do that. And so the idea is that they're going to join together to sort of combat these issues. Yeah, this is exactly, this is what uh, Terrell will coin the double burden mm -hmm. faced by, by Black women. Uh, I'm going to share the a little bit of a, a longer quote, but it really, we use the lifting as we climb um, to talk about Mary Church Terrell so often um, because they adopt this as their motto. It sort of just gets clipped into lifting as we climb, but the full text of what she writes when she writes about same, this. I was going to share the same quote. Okay, of course. <laughs> um, I just love it though, because I think it speaks to, you know, lifting as we climb has such an optimistic like we just lift each other up but she really has i think the activist perspective she says and so lifting as we climb onward and upward we go struggling and striving and hoping that the buds and blossoms of our desires will burst into glorious fruition ere long with courage born of success achieved in the past with a keen sense of the responsibility which we shall continue to assume we look forward to a future large with promise and hope Seeking no favors because of our color, nor patronage because of our needs, we knock at the bar of justice, asking for an equal chance. And I love that, knocking at the bar of justice. So great. She could bring a word too, man. She could bring a phrase. She was a commanding speaker. And this is something that develops, obviously, over her her the course of her activism but an, an exceptional writer. Just you see that you see that beautiful writer. education and that mind at work. Yes. Um, and she is twice elected president of um, the National Association of Colored Women. She is also going to um, become found what becomes the National Association of University Women. Uh, and so these she's going to um, 
start a training program in kindergarten before DC public schools had a kindergarten. So she's really progressive. She's interested in statehood for DC. She's interested in equality for women and equality for African Americans. Uh, and so she's kind of gets involved in this and she forms over the course of this uh, a meaningful relationship with um, Susan B. Anthony, which is someone we've obviously talked quite a bit about. She's going to stand up at a suffrage meeting. She goes to a suffrage meeting and basically stands up and um, sort of says, you know, I hope that in your the, the push for suffrage, you're including African-American women in what you're doing. And she's really going to push, press the envelope on this a lot. And Susan B. Anthony by this time is not a young woman. By the time she come, uh, is um, known to uh, Mary Church Terrell, she is um, elderly. She's in her 80s, but she is the sort of very much the matriarch of the movement. And uh, they form this very meaningful friendship. Um, she gives a speech in 1898 called The Progress of Colored Women, which really is the, going to be the big speech. Um, it's at NASA, the National Association of Women's Suffrage Association, a national... American Women's Suffrage Association, sorry. At their biennial session in Washington, she gives this really great speech and it's a call to action. It's about, this is where she coins the phrase, the double burden. And that, you know, that when they're, she says that when faced, uh, compared to white women, African-American have to overcome both their race and their gender. And it's going to give, um, she is going to be at this point, the unofficial ambassador uh, for African-American women to the sort of larger national suffrage conversation that's happening very much at that moment. Uh, and so she is going to, um, black women aren't allowed to create their own chapter within the organization, but uh, she's going to talk about what it means to be a colored woman, what it means to be a colored woman in Washington, in the capital of this country where she has no rights. Um, and she's going to talk about um basically how best that this movement needs to be intersectional and integrated before the word intersection was really a term that we used. And then they have the 1913 March, which is something we have talked about a lot. <laughs> and I don't know, Alice Paul is great, but also she sucks at this moment, really. Alice Paul organizes this march and she's going to relegate these African-American suffragists to the back of the parade. Yes, uh, Paul sort of feels that the only way to win over Southern suffragists, the only way to keep the white women in the movement happy is to segregate the march um, and sort of just keep keep it all clean that way. And uh, it's deeply insulting and very much not keeping, I think, in the spirit of what so many of the women involved with the movement would have wanted, or so many, certainly of uh, women like Mary Church uh, Terrell and Ida B. Wells, uh, and the many uh, Black suffragists that were in this fight. And so it's sort of, you know, is a, it's a slap in the face. And I think that we've talked about how Ida B. Wells sort of handles it, which is just to like ignore it. And Mary does something sort of similar. She's sort of like, I'm not going to be told where to march. Yeah. I know where I stand. And she marches with a delegation from New York City. Yes. 
Um, she is going to, you know, she mar- there's a, a the Delta Sigma Theta sorority of women from Howard, which is an African American university. Um, she is they're uh, going to march part of the march with them apparently, um, and so she is she they she wants. Uh, there to be integration and she's going to push back really hard uh, as suffrage gets closer. And she, it must've been, I can only imagine how much difficulty she must've had trying to push for integration, knowing she can't push too hard, but having to endure this very real racism while they're all trying to fight the over overt discrimination of their gender, I can only imagine how galling it must have been and how she must have had to hold her tongue so many times. Uh, she and her daughter are going to participate in the Silent Sentinels uh, that takes place out, uh, outside of the White House to uh, protest against Wilson's reluctance to uh, give women the vote. Uh, so she is going to be active in the suffrage movement uh, right up until the passage of the 19th Amendment. Uh, she is a lifelong Republican. She's going to fundraise for uh, Warren Harding and uh, work on his uh presidential campaign she which is obviously the first that women can vote uh and so uh she is going to now she is a resident of the district she cannot vote as it turns out because women in the district like everyone in the district did not actually get the right to vote until the 60s at times anyway so she is going she is fighting for a right that she never gets like she because she lives in the district and because she chooses to live in the district she never gets the right to vote but she pushes for women to get the right to vote um she also is going to fight for dc statehood uh and integration in uh dc generally she is going to pick it into her 80s like she continues to be active she continues to support all kinds of um uh, progressive causes, the struggle of black women and black people. She is going to um, focus on education and writing and activism all the way up through into and through the Second World War. And to talk about how extensively she writes, I mean, she really is a journalist, um, much in the way that, that Ida B. Wells uh, is working in that same space. But uh, she actually has um, a pen name that she uses, uh, Euphemia Kirk, which is just like makes me laugh. It feels like a very stuffy lady of that era, Euphemia. Um, and so she will use this pen name, uh, especially as her notoriety grows, uh, to allow herself to write in a wide array of newspapers, newspapers for white audiences, for black audiences. Um, she will write just for papers up and down the East Coast and the South uh, and use kind of that pen name and that opportunity to really promote um, the efforts of all of these organizations that she has helped to found and lead. Uh, she also contributes extensively through her lifetime to the Washington Post and the Washington Evening Star under her own name. So you can actually go back into their archives and see articles and uh, letters to the editor and opinion pieces that she has written. Um, she was also quite involved in literary societies and organizations. As Rebecca mentioned earlier, she was class poet at Oberlin. And so it is not surprising to me that in addition to using writing in sort of that activist and journalist space that she continues throughout her life to keep a love of sort of literary writing and to write poems uh, into uh, kind of adulthood. Uh, we've also just truly only scratched 
scratch the surface in terms of organizations to which she is a founding member or an early leader or president of. Uh, she's involved in the founding of the NAACP. Uh, she is going to be involved in any number of sort of DC and regional organizations, many of which ultimately combine with other orgs. But I think if you took a full list, it's something like 18 or 19 organizations that she helps to found or lead in their early years. So this is a woman who keeps an exceptionally busy calendar. And as you mentioned, through her life, um, she never really slows down. We'll try to put some of these in the show notes, but you can find pictures of Mary Church Terrell at events in the 1930s, 40s, 50s. Um, she, you know, becomes friendly with women like Mary McLeod Bethune, who really represent a new generation of leadership. Uh, she's connecting with many of the young women who are going to go on and be leaders in the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Um, she is just like exceptionally feisty. Uh, she'd been a member of the American Association of University Women, the AAUW, for a long time. Um, and she fights to sort of um, integrate um, this particular organization that had become segregated through sort of the Jim Crow era. Um, I really like uh, her fight against Hex, which was a very big department store in Washington, D.C. Um, Hex was sort of like the end-all be-all. Um, their location today would be where, uh, their flagship location, I should say, would be where Terrell Place is. So that's just right across from one of the Chinatown metro stations. If you know 7th Street, uh, 7th and F is where it was located. Um, Hex had always been sort of known as a place where Black residents of DC could shop, but you were not welcome at the lunch counter. And that was just sort of the accepted thing. Anybody can come and shop here, but when it comes to sitting down at the lunch counter, they just kept that very segregated ideal. And so at the age of like 85 or 86, she's founding another organization, the Coordinating Committee for the Enforcement of DC Anti-Discrimination Laws, which try saying in that 10 times fast, and she makes herself president of the CCEDCADL, um, which is that abbreviated. Um, and she is like in her 80s and she's like, okay, I started this organization. I'm going to be president. And now we're going to picket Hex Department Store every single day. And there are pictures of her at 86, 87 years old, 1950s, a woman who was born during the Civil War yeah. out picketing outside this department store. And it blows my mind because, of course, it, you know, it draws attention because of her notoriety, because of her age um, and sort of because of her her fame. And so there's quite a bit of press coverage and it's really successful. Hex, the following year, has to announce that they're uh, integrating all of their dining spaces in all of their department stores. And I just love that, that commitment to getting out on the street and fighting for what you believe in at any age, I think is really remarkable. And she knows everybody like six <laughs> degrees of like Mary church Terrell. Like she is, uh, she, anybody who is like intellectual or uh, influential in her age, particularly if they're African-American, she has met them. She knows Booker T. Washington, uh, who's the director of the Tuskegee Institute. She at 17 years old, when she's basically like a college freshman, she, her father introduces her to Frederick Douglass, who by this time is an elderly man and very famous. And they strike up this very improbable, friendship they um frederick douglas we've talked about on the pod they meet at the uh, inaugural ball for president garfield who we've talked about on the pod uh she is going to be they're going to write letters to each other and um 
they there's a they sign both a statement in hopes of hearing uh, of a lawless cases where black individuals in certain states are not receiving due process. She eventually is going to when she gets married, she tells him that she's considering retiring to focus on her family. And Douglas, who is himself by this time very old and not that doesn't have that many years left, is going to write her and make the case that she, her talent is too immense to go unused, uh, and that he persuades her that she must stay in public life and continue to push the struggle sort of forward. Uh, she is going to be invited in 1904 to speak at the International Congress of Women in Germany. Uh, she's the only black woman at the conference and she actually, because she is basically fluent in German, she gives the address in German. And it's so interesting because so many of these the Americans will show up and give an address in a foreign country in English, which is like, imagine having a conference in Washington, D.C. and having somebody give a, a speech in a foreign language. Like, she decides she's going to go to Germany. She's going to give this address in German. Um, she she also then uh, concludes with an English version, just so that, you know, she're, she's aware. Uh, she's pals with Ida, Ida B. Wells. She is, um, she, when she goes to uh, England at one point she stays with with H.G. Wells the science fiction writer like she pals around with him at one point um, she's so great she knows uh, Alice Paul and Lucy Burns who we've also talked about they're a little younger than she is they're I think a little bit closer to her daughter's age uh, but she is part of the silent sentinels so all of the sort of prominent women uh, white women at any rate who are pushing for suffrage she's going to be close to them as well well, um, she is, uh, she knows all sorts of people in DC, sort of DC lore. So she's really kind of close to so many interesting, uh, and kind of cool people, uh, as she, um, uh, sort of moves through her life. She is, um, she lives long enough to see both the Supreme Court decision deciding, uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, which is, um, separate but equal uh, conditions at the height of the Jim Crow era. And then she lives long enough and act is active long enough to live to see it reversed, which is Brown v. Board in 1954. So she sees Brown v. Board desegregate schools across the country uh, at 90, 90 years old. Uh, she celebrates that and then dies two months later, aged 90 in 1954. And not... Is too surprisingly she plays a role in sort of setting the stage for brown v board of education because mm -hmm. she is going to not too surprisingly take up a legal case against a restaurant called thompson's uh, thompson's was a chain kind of like you know counter food um you can imagine like mm -hmm. cold cold sandwiches and the like um the particular location that uh mary church Terrell will visit that will spark this court case uh was located on 14th street just about at 14th and new york avenue um there's kind of a cvs and a wells fargo over there today um so if you know that intersection not very far we're talking like a block literally a block from the white house um not the figurative mm -hmm. blocks from the white house but an actual block um there was a thompson's an actual block there was a thompson's uh restaurant and so this is a place where they decide they're going to challenge sort of the uh, segregation laws in Washington, D.C. So this is February 1950. Um, as you noted, she's like 
pushing, pushing up towards 90. She's in her late eighties. Um, she's like 87 at the time, 86, 87. She will go to lunch with three male friends, three male colleagues. Um, one of them is white. The other three are black. Um, and of course, when they get there, uh, the manager says, sorry, um, our store policy, our restaurant policy is not to serve you. Uh, they demand to know why they can't have lunch. And he again says, it's not my choice. This is the choice of Thompson's company. Uh, they do this knowing that this is how he's going to react. And this is what's going to allow them to launch a legal argument. Um, they're basically going to be challenging sort of these Jim Crow laws that are still on the books, but that by this era, many places have sort of decided to sort of like, okay, this is the way it's going. We'll in enforce this at varying levels of degree. Um, but they really want to challenge the idea that you can have this policy at any restaurant. So they actually try to make a case of it. Uh, and the first time they take it to trial, it doesn't work. Um, so she has to go back to Thompson's like six months later. And she goes this time with a male colleague and a female colleague, and they try again. And it's the second visit that allows them to actually file a case. And they choose that Thompson's location because it's right next to the lawyers that they know are going to defend uh, Thompson's in court. So it's a little bit of them being like, hey, hey, your law office is right here. And so we're just going to pick this restaurant right here. Um, the reason it gets to go kind of uh, gets an appeal is when the uh, they bring this case, and I'm like no legal scholar, so when they bring this case to the municipal judge, the judge doesn't hold a full trial, which allows them to appeal and go to a higher court and appeal again, and it eventually goes up to the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court is actually going to hear District of Columbia v. John R. Thompson Company, Inc., which is the Thompson's restaurant change, uh, chain, and they are going to basically rule that this is a unanimous, they rule unanimously, by the way, uh, that this is, you know, in this particular case of the District mm -hmm. of Columbia, this dining establishment, they cannot discriminate on the basis of skin color. And so this is a really important case, but nobody talks about it because it only applies to the District of Columbia. Uh, eating right. establishments, essentially. So it's a very narrow in its scope, which is probably why it's unanimous. They don't think that they're setting necessarily the precedence that it will have. But I think that it is certainly um, important uh, to where we see where we sort of essentially throw out Plessy v. Ferguson that there was this court case that applied to DC prior to that so that when we get to board the um, Board of Education, we really have sort of like this little building block. So uh, it does not surprise me at all that Mary Church Terrell is right there in the mix, that she's the person going um, and on the ground when it comes to setting this up to bring this case before the Supreme Court. And it's also interesting to me, they do this, they bring, they start this case in 1950, which is a full decade before the Greensboro sit-in, the Greensboro lunch counter sit-in in, in uh, North Carolina, which is sort of this foundational moment in the struggle for civil rights. And I think it's worth, like, it's a good idea to mention that this is a full decade before that. And they're doing the same basic idea which is sitting at a lunch counter not being served and you know just bringing a court case making a big deal about that greensboro lunch counter is going to be a decade later it's going to be uh borrow very much from this time period mary church terrell isn't even the first in the dc area to try this there's a guy who the alexandria library sit in uh samuel tucker who we should absolutely cover on this pod uh he is going to organize a sit-in in 1939 same idea go in ask for service 
be denied and refuse to leave and make a uh, polite but firm stance. And so this is a whole continuum of activism. And we have this idea that like the civil war just, or the civil rights, I'm sorry, just sort of crops out of nowhere in 1960. And that's a big moment. And it is, but it also, there's a an entire continuum of activism that really never stops happening. And uh, from World War II all the way through the early 50s, this is a continuous sort of push uh, in smaller ways, but they start to snowball and grow. And I feel like that's kind of where Mary Church Terrell lives is she's sort of pushing and continuing to be a, um, you know, an activist knowing that she won't see the end of it and knowing that people will borrow from her techniques and continue to push the movement forward. So it's this whole continuum of um, activism that's kind of going on, which I think is really cool. Uh, Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I I just love it. Um, You know, I love that she is aware of sort of, I think where she is in this moment in history, sort of this bridge between the end of of one reality and sort of the beginning of another, um, she, I actually think not to spoil our next uh, next episode, but uh, I think there's kind of a, a beautiful sort of bridge from Mary Church Terrell to our next topic uh, to sort of kind of bring us from how do we get from 1860 to sort of the 1960s. Um, but I find her fascinating. Um, there's quite a few places in Washington D.C that connect to her and her story. Um, I mentioned Terrell Place, which today is sort of a, a mixed use development, um, but there's a very lovely marker and plaque. Um, if you go to 7th and F, uh, just again, right across from that Metro station, um, if you remember where Rosa Mexicana is, um, those of you who've been to Caps games, um, there's a really mm-hmm. sizable marker and sort of plaque, bronze plaque to commemorate her and to commemorate uh, her activism there. There's also a call box, one of eight call boxes and downtown DC um, that honor uh, American women. She has a call box right at 14th and G, so very close to where Thompson's restaurant was. It includes um, lifting as we climb and includes a beautiful quote from her. It's my favorite, actually, of the eight call boxes because visually it's just so beautiful uh, and it does a great job of sort of sharing her story. Uh, I encourage everyone to check out all the call boxes, um, but that's definitely one of my favorites. She has a school. Mary Church Terrell Elementary School in uh, Southeast in Washington, D.C., although it closed in 2013. Uh, her home, she lived in LeDroit Park. So my our patrons uh, for January's patron episode, you will have heard Candon talk about her research uh, into LeDroit Park. Mary Church uh, Terrell and her husband lived uh, in LeDroit Park. Their um, home is now a National Historic Landmark. It was not in her lifetime. It doesn't become so until the 70s, but uh, it is... Um, uh, now a uh, landmark. I should she mention that her home is privately a... owned. It is not a not a national park site. Oh, just to yes. clarify for listeners, um, so it is it is a oh, landmark, sorry, yeah. um, and they're doing some restoration work. Don't go there. And um, but you can't, I mean, you could try knocking on the door, but it's privately owned. If you live there, send us an email. We'd love to know more. Yeah, we'd love to see it. Um, the she has a she's one of twelve pioneers of civil rights commem- commemorated on a postage stamp. So she has a stamp, which I think is cool. Uh, Her alma mater uh, has named their main library after her in 2018, the Mary Church Terrell Main Library at Oberlin. Uh, And she's in the National Women's Hall of Fame because you really can't have a National Women's Hall of Fame without her. It would not be 
good. Breaking cool. news. Uh, my uh, sources say uh, Howard University purchased her house uh, about two years ago. They're the ones doing the oh. uh, restoration work on it. So Howard has the house, which leads oh, me to believe cool. that at some point it will either be uh, something for the campus or something more open to the public. And I will note that her house is only about two blocks away from where Anna Cooper lived. Um, which I think is fantastic of the two of them sort of beginning together at Oberlin being, you know, kind of two of the only women to graduate with a bachelor's, to graduate with a master's, um, and then just dedicating their lives. They live, um, both live a very long time. Uh, they really are contemporaries truly through their entire career. And I love that they live so close together in LaDroit Park. And of course, our colleague Candon literally writing the book on LaDroit right now, which I can't wait for. Um, but I, yes, my sources say know, so uh, Howard acquired the house recently. So that could mean hopefully nice. something more public in the future than a private home. That would be lovely. I would like that so very much. Yes. And so that is Mary Church Terrell. And she is just so great. I love that she just keeps agitating right up until her death at 90 years old and sees such a like fantastic and great American life that she sees so much change uh, and just keeps on like pushing us to do better. We can always do better. And I love that idea. Um, and inspi she inspires an another generation of activism, one of whom we're going to talk about in two weeks. Ooh, so exciting. We're not going to tell you who, though. We're going to leave you guys super in suspense because <laughs> that's how we roll. Um, yes. So thank you guys very much for coming along. This is Black History Month. Black history is American history and American history is black history. And it is so great. So learn something today about someone you didn't know about in African-American history. That is our charge to our, our people. Um, thank you guys for coming along with us. We'll be back in two weeks. Yes, thank you guys so much. Thank you to our wonderful patrons who are fantastic supporters of the pod. Um, if you are a patron, be sure to check the Patreon. We're updating um, our patron benefit tiers and you might see some new benefits, some added benefits, especially if you like to take a tour with us. So you're gonna wanna check that out. But thank you, thank you, thank you to our patrons. If you're not a patron, it's never too late to join. You get special benefits. You get a special episode just for you every month. Um, so our patrons get a little extra love um, but thank you everybody you can always reach out to us on social media at tour guide tell on twitter and at tour guide tell all on facebook and instagram and you can always email us to pitch the pod tour guide tell all at gmail.com thank you guys so much we will see you next time bye bye